Hello world, what is up? Quick question, have you ever learned a new word or phrase and suddenly that word or phrase or whatever it is, is everywhere? You know what I'm talking about. Uh, imagine if we could create that powerful awareness about how you feel, how you experience emotion. You're pretty cool, right? Well, welcome to the Feelings Lab from Hume AI, a podcast about the science of emotion. I'm your host, Matt Forte. Uh, not too long ago, I actually hosted a show for Verizon called Build Series, where I logged hundreds of hours exploring the work of some of today's most prolific uh, creators, actors, authors, musicians, scientists. I was very lucky. And uh, we discussed not only the creative process, but what drives them, how they think, what they feel, and hope to evoke from their audiences. But now I get to dig deeper than ever before, and I'm bringing you along with me. Uh, it is often said a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step, my friends. And so here we are. This is episode zero. That's right. I said episode zero. This is our single step where we're going to outline kind of what the podcast is all about, give you a lay of the land. Uh, we're going to explore the new frontier of emotion science and its lessons for creating a more empathic future. Each week, our expert hosts and emotionally attuned guests will join me in a lively discussion as we chart out human emotions, uh, their roots in evolution, and their role in shaping our experiences in the modern world. Uh, ultimately, our intent here is to create for our listeners, that's you, uh, a robust habit of noticing, we've been calling it, uh, an awareness as to what you feel and, and why you feel and how you feel, all of it. We're going to cover it all. I want to pull the curtain back, give you a glimpse at the matrix, if you will. If you can't tell already, I'm super excited to go on this journey, and I'm a firm believer that the best adventures are experienced together with friends. And I am super fortunate to be surrounded by an incredible group of experts who, by the end of this series, I will have tricked into also being my friends. Uh, joining me now, I've got Dr. Alan Cowan. Uh, is an applied mathematician whose work has recently been upending how people study emotion using big data, uh, new statistical methods, AI, and machine learning. I have Dr. Uh, Decker Keltner is here, a professor of psychology at UC. C. Berkeley and faculty director of the Greater Good Science Center. He's the author of hundreds, hundreds of scientific articles uh, and books on the biological and evolutionary origins of compassion, awe, love, beauty, and humility, as well as power, social class, and inequality. Uh, also joining us, we have Danielle Credit Cobb, uh, the founder and chief design slash creative officer of Google Empathy Lab. Before Google, Danielle worked in Apple's design group and Nike before that. Uh, as a pioneer of empathic design and research methods, she's led unconventional creative explorations with NASA, Berkeley, Yale, Stanford, uh, on being Ram Dass. And just again, for those keeping score at home, my job before this was essentially to ask celebrities where in their house they kept their Emmys. So surround yourself with excellence. That's that's my advice to you at home, friends. People this smart are obviously a lot busier than I am. So who joins me from week to week may shift slightly, but today the stars have aligned and all three are here to help me and help us uh, pour the foundation, hoist the sails, light the fuse, if you will. I got like <laughs> 10 more, but you get the point. We're getting started, okay? So wherever you are uh, listening, watching, consuming in general, please join me now in welcoming my esteemed co-hosts and guests. Everybody, welcome. How's everybody doing? You guys doing all right? Definitely. Doing good. <laughs> yes, Great. we're doing all right. Very good. Everybody at once. Where are we all coming from tonight? You don't have to give me a home address or anything. It's the internet. But generally speaking, where is everybody? I'm in New York. Alan, where are you? I'm in New York City as well. Very nice. East Coast. Dr. Uh, 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 where are you at? You're in Top Berkeley. Room. Okay. West Coast. Danielle? Rock in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> so even more West. <laughs> Further yeah. West. As West as you can be. Well, it's fantastic. I'm super excited to have all of you here. 
Uh, we're going to jump in in just a second. You know, as you were listening uh, in my intro, I hope you were listening. Before we get started, I've got another uh, 45 minutes of copy I'm going to read just to really set the tone. <laughs> kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, I want to get right to it. Um, in my intro, I promised that we would use science to create this hyper awareness around emotion. I probably should have asked you before I promised that. But is that even possible? Did, did I make that up or is that something we can do? How can scientists claim to know about my very personal feelings? Who wants to start? Alan, I'm looking at you. You're not. Sure. You either agree with me, I didn't lie, and you have something to say, or you can't wait to tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> I don't think science can tell us about your personal feelings, Matt. It can tell us how your personal feelings are similar in some ways to other people's personal feelings, and that you behave in similar ways when other people are feeling those feelings, um, when you feel those feelings, if that makes sense. So science is all about generalization. It's all about observing how people behave in everyday life and uh, trying to glean what we can from that. Uh, feeling itself is impossible to study. Qualitative experience is impossible to measure directly. So how can science study human feeling? Um, science can observe emotional expressions, what you do with your voice, what you do with your face. Science can observe what you say you feel, and what you say you feel is put into words or put into analogies that are really based on the same things that science is trying to study. Regularities in everyday life that you encounter. Um, the way that my anger is the same as your anger uh, is the same way that I know that my red is the same as your red or my blue is the same as your blue. It's because you point to blue things uh, and you say those are blue and I agree those uh, are the same color and I have the phenomenal experience of blue. Which um, so far, and yes, that does make sense. Very well said. Thank you, sir. Uh, and while I do advocate for all good things in moderation, if you're playing at home, a very dangerous drinking game would be every time we say the word feelings. It's going to happen a lot on this podcast. So <laughs> just just tread carefully. Uh, but I, I want to ask, you know, you mentioned how like my anger is similar to your anger so that we can track that. My sadness is similar to your sadness. But one of the things that I'm really excited about is um, all the gray, all the nuance in between there and, and how, how do we begin to quantify or measure all those in-betweens? How does that work? Well, uh, there are limitations to language um, and that's something that constrains the way we talk about emotion to each other and it constrains science as well. Um, for a long time, science has focused on a very small set of words that people use to describe their feelings. Uh, and they've done that largely as a way of dealing with the fact that science can only gather so much data at a time. Uh, and in the past, uh, you'd have to bring people in the lab, show them movies, get them to label their experiences. And those labels are very limited. So it's not necessarily the case that whenever I say I'm angry, uh, and it's the same thing that you feel when you're angry, uh, it could be... Uh, that every time uh, you say you're angry, uh, you experience something that I have never experienced before. You experience something that's totally unknown to me. Maybe it's a level of anger that I've never felt. Right? Um, the only way that uh, we can relate your anger to my anger is through the situations in which it happens, through the ways that you express it in your face. Um, and uh, it may turn out that you're not feeling anything at all. Hmm. 
That's got to be a scary thing to hear back. <laughs> You're not feeling anything at all. <laughs> it's like the worst diagnosis somebody can give. <laughs> uh, and that oh, that kind of mostly answers what my next big question was, which is what is it about? Because, you know, we're talking about some new science and new data and you yourself at the forefront uh, sort of. The, the originator, the, 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 the one who came up with some of this new science and new data that makes it possible to have a more comprehensive understanding of how we feel, enabling us to go beyond that surface level, happy, sad, angry. Talk to me about the stuff that makes it so exciting and new compared to the data that we had before and that we've been working off of for years. Well, what's happened is that for the past probably 50 years, um, people have tried to measure emotion. Uh, they've tried to examine whether emotional behaviors are similar across cultures, um, but uh, with limited data. Uh, generally speaking, uh, people have run statistical tests on data that has you know, samples numbering in the hundreds. And when you do that, you can only incorporate so many different variables, so many different experiences, expressions, vocalizations, and that has led to a necessary simplification of the space of emotion that science studies. When you can collect more data, and you can do it at scale in everyday life, you can begin to examine the broader space of emotional experience, the broader space of emotional expression, what it is exactly that's preserved across cultures, what it is exactly that's culture-specific. And you can make these characterizations in a way that really honors the complexity of real lived human emotional experience. Um, and, and, and so I think without, without that complexity, what you're studying is not the emotion that we feel every day. I, I really don't think it is. Um, you're studying uh, groupings of behaviors. You're studying groupings of experiences. But those experiences vary so much, um, and those behaviors vary so much, um, that when you find cultural differences, um, it might be because you have the wrong grouping. Um, you know, when you find differences in how experiences relate to expressions, it might be because you've grouped experiences together that correspond to different expressions. And so I think science, for the first time, is characterizing in a data-driven way how experiences relate to expressions, how expressions uh, vary across cultures, how expressions vary in different contexts, uh, thousands of different contexts, many different cultures, thousands of people in each culture in real life. Um, and the only way to do that is with machine learning um, and with large-scale data, with the Internet. Um, so <laughs> there are many innovations uh, that have enabled emotion science to become much more nuanced, that have enabled emotion science to really study emotion in a new way. Dacker, you've been in this field for a minute, and so I have to imagine when uh, Alan came along with, with his uh, new methods and new data, what was your initial reaction? How did that sort of uh, look through your lens, through somebody who's been in this field and, and been sort of immersed in this nuance for a while? You know, it, it was an epiphany, Matt. It was, um, you know, our, as Alan was saying, our field really begins with Charles Darwin, uh, and really earlier, almost all of the great traditions, the philosophical traditions have thought about, you know, like you said, what are these feeling states that overtake us and make us see the world and have this rich experience? Um, and it's been, people have been thinking about it for thousands of years, and Darwin came along 
And actually, people don't know about this. In his two books on human beings in 1871 and 1872, he wrote rich descriptions of about 45 different states, right? But in the 60s, Paul Ekman came along, pioneer in the field, and he studied photographs of six emotions, anger, fear, sadness, surprise, disgust, and happiness, or a smile. And that dominated the field. And people thought, that's emotion. You know, there's just one positive state. Yeah. And, you know, um, when Alan went out with these big data techniques and said, instead of having people watch six films, let's have them watch 2100. <laughs> instead of them judging six facial expressions, let's have them judge 1500 with all kinds of different subjective items that you rate your feelings about the film or the, the facial expression or whatever the stimulus is. And then you get these complicated maps. I was, I literally, it was like an aesthetic experience where I suddenly realized that there is this space of emotional feeling or how we see emotion in others that has dozens of states, that has these complicated blends, that has states like beauty and awe and interest and boredom and confusion and realization. And you can, and it suddenly, you know, it brought into the field, uh, the real richness of, of how complicated emotions are, but tractable, right, through this scientific lens. So it was, it felt, I was looking at a painting, you know, like, ah, this is, this is what feeling is about. So it was a thrilling moment. For sure. Uh, Danielle, I'm really curious to get your perspective as well now, especially as we're talking about sort of how the data has been presented. Uh, for those listening or watching, if you're unfamiliar with the maps we're talking about, you can go to Hume.ai and they have available these these gorgeous explorations of their data and these maps. And uh, Danielle, with your background and, and all the things you've worked on in design and all the different hats you've worn, what, what was your impression like the first time you saw and was made aware of the data and of the work that Alan and the team were doing? Um, you know, I had a similar experience to Dacker and Dacker, you know, I'd kind of gone to Dacker for his sage counsel in this space in, in, in terms of bringing it into the halls of tech and the rooms of tech um, in a different way. And I think what was so compelling and sort of profound to me was that, like, like Dacker said, there, it was like a painting. It was an ability to look at the mosaic or the mesh of emotion, the dynamics of it. Like our experience as people is like, we're just these messy things that kind of go around the world, feeling what we're feeling, not knowing exactly what it is, being able to identify some of it or <laughs> communicate some of it. But it's all just kind of like a Charlie Brown pig pen cloud of feeling. And so what was cool about seeing the granularity of it, but not just the granularity of saying, oh, it's this one. It's this word. It means this thing. It happens for this reason. It's different than others for these reasons. It's like not just having that kind of parsing, but actually being able to see the relationship between them. It's like being able to look into a mirror or like Dumbledore's pensive and, and seeing ourselves a little more clearly because of it. And for me at the empathy lab, yeah. what was so powerful was it's, it's a pretty incredible thing to be able to use the language of science to describe these like invisible and tangible spaces in us because it's scary yeah. to look into the yeah. kind of murky water. And, you know, there's the positive emotions, the nourishing emotions of awe and wonder and joy and curiosity. And then the shadow ones, you know, what I like to think of as like the teaching emotions of fear and worry and, you know, envy and frustration and other things. It's like how to work with those two and let them all be welcome versus like, well, these are okay and those are not okay. So there's something about the map that says 
like we can look at all of these things. It's safe to look at all of these things. And particularly working in tech and engineering folks and science folks to use the language, their mother tongue to describe this kind of mystery space is, is like the Rosetta Stone moment. It's like, okay, we have a way to talk about this stuff. That's a that's a great yeah the Rosetta Stone moment that's a great way to phrase it uh, you know one of the reasons I wanted to start this show uh, at the top by by asking that question of what if we could harness uh, this this power of recognition uh, was because the first time that I met with you know everybody in the team at Hume and, and got just like a basic introduction of of what they were doing and, and the history of emotion science and all that um, even just after that short that, that brief meeting it, it kickstarted this heightened awareness for me yeah. and, uh, and I'm very much curious especially for for all of you do you have what's your early memory of that moment for you that you first became really aware of the depth and nuance and not just um, externally observe it but also to recognize it within as well uh, and we can start uh, Danielle if you want to start and then we'll, we'll kind of go around the, the room as it were but I'd love to hear stories from you guys regarding that moment from your you through your eyes when you first developing that like early emotional fluency of under yeah i think it's probably gosh it's about six years ago now dacker when we first started working together <laughs> and it was great kind of like all roads lead to rome you know with dacker he was like go here go there go you know and it was it was a great way to it's funny, you know, you've been human for however many decades you've been alive and you've been a feeling thing for how many, but then what was so interesting to me was even as like, I have a joke with some of my research friends where we, we've studied emotion and empathy and all these things. And, you know, everyone has different kind of archetypes of the way that they travel emotionally. And the joke amongst our research crew is like, you use your full spectrum of emotion. So as a deeply feeling person who's like, you know, kind of been conversant and self-reflective for a long time. What was amazing to me was how much I didn't know. So learning about the nature of emotional intelligence and the primacy of emotion and what it really means to recognize, understand, regulate all of these things. And what I found that was so funny was in the, in the span of the first probably two years of working with Dacker, it was like, I had a great relationship. I had a terrible breakup. I had like a struggle at work. It was like, it's such high relief because <laughs> it was all fresh. It's not, it's not like it lives like emotion science doesn't live in this really kind of arcane area where you're like, let me bring out the medieval candles and study this. And it stays over there. It's like in every moment and you can't help but look at yeah. yourself and get uncomfortable. Yeah. And that's what I love about it. It's, it's, um, it shines a light on the corners of yourself that you didn't think you you thought you understood until you're seeing it clearly. And what I love about that is so much of emotion, the prescription for the strategy to deal with it or to live with it in a good practice is inside the emotion itself. And so if you can just figure out what's going on, then you can take, you know, then it's your story to finish. And that for me is the power of it. But I have to, I have to be honest, the beginning of a, the empathy lab was a bumpy ride because you have to go inside. So <laughs> yeah, I'll spare sure. the messy details, but yeah. <laughs> I was just relieved to hear that it was roughly six years ago because I think when I was very like the beginning, yeah. I figured it out. I was gonna be like, uh Oh, I'm just I going deep. I, <laughs> I just arrived at this like a month ago. How far behind am I in the rest of society? But like that was comforting. I was like, okay, good, good. Some other people also arrived to this later. Um, Dagger, I assume you, pr you had a pretty uh, early start. You like, what was your epiphany that, that would launch you on this trajectory and this incredible career that you've been having? Oh, well, you know, it, I mean, you know, I was lucky in some parents who, you know, my dad's a 
painter and he had me looking at paintings as a kid and it just it it is you know paintings in some sense are like alan's maps or like attempts to describe expressive behavior in science which is there are these representations that open your eyes and i love how you use the word notice because i think that's what good art and music and science does is helps you notice these things that like daniel was saying are these messy forces in our lives they happen often below the level of the cortex. So we kind of are feeling things and we don't exactly know why we're being pushed to fall in love or express our desire deep or whatever. And, and for me in, you know, in part childhood, you know, through art and my dad and my mom, but the other big one was, you know, I learned uh, with Paul Ekman how to code facial expressions with, his facial action coding system where you slow the face down into frame by frame analysis and you see these expressions unfold in milliseconds. And I remember going outside of the lab when I was 27 or eight, you know, and in one sort of stroll, I saw a young girl on a swing who was really suffering from anxiety and I could see it in her face. Right. And then I walked into this cafe and I wasn't, I was dressed like a postdoc and I was kind of smelling bad and hadn't brushed my hair. And this server of cappuccinos sneered at me in a millisecond. I was like, up yours, you know, <laughs> it was just all unfolding in this, in, like this invisible language. I'm like, wow, I can suddenly see this stuff. I'm not sure it's good, so but good. you know, and that's, you know, I think Alan's, these maps, you know, you know, with Virginia Woolf saying like, we didn't have maps of our passions. We have maps of, London, we have maps of, you know, topography and countries. And now we're starting to really see how incredible this space of emotions are and what, how much mystery there is, to use Danielle's word. So I was lucky to begin early, and it's still a mystery. It still astonishes me. It's pretty awesome. I'm reminded of, uh, you guys are making, you're quoting Virginia Woolf and all these amazing references. I'm reminded of Superman when he first learns his powers <laughs> and is overwhelmed by all the cries of help around the world. Oh. But, uh, but he learned, but like just that, that moment where you walk out and you can see it all and it's just so overwhelming at first. Um, yeah. But it's amazing to over time kind of hone that and harness it and learn how to control it or, or, or process it and ingest all that data. Um, yeah, Alan, that's what, just to, oh, sorry to interrupt, it. you know. No, 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 please you know, do. Yeah, go for it. Like one of the things that art and science and literature does, we have this status quo view of the world and we move through our day. And a lot of the status quo view of the world, like with Danielle's work at Google, is like emotions don't matter. They're not part of, they shouldn't be part of our daily life. And when you have good science or coding facial expressions or hearing it in music, it opens your eyes. It's like an yeah. epiphany. Like, oh, there it is, you know. So yeah. um, it, it was an epiphany for me. That's amazing. Alan, uh, tough act to follow, but I'm sure you've got a, a, a good story. Talk to me about it. When were your eyes open for the first time? And what was it like? What was the moment? I, I mean, my story is almost exactly the same as Danielle's, which is I met Dacker six years ago, and <laughs> I looked at some of what he was doing. Um, I So I was studying emotion in a kind of traditional way. And I was looking at how emotion relates to brain activity, which is something people have tried to do. Um, and the first step is to measure what people are feeling or what people are expressing and figure out how that's perceived and how that maps onto the brain activity or how those feelings are uh, map onto brain activity. And the big question 
in the minds of many scientists was, is it better to talk about emotion as being a combination of how pleasant or unpleasant somebody feels and how calm or aroused or excited somebody feels, just those two dimensions, maybe a third being how submissive or dominant somebody feels, or is it better to talk about emotion as being kind of six categories, happiness, sadness, surprise, anger, fear, disgust. And I was of the mindset that the big finding would be that you can't describe emotion with just valence and arousal, how pleasant or unpleasant somebody feels or how calm or aroused they are. Uh, you would actually need another dimension, submissive or dominant. <laughs> and so my big question was, uh, how do we prove this? And nobody had really done the statistics necessary to test this question. Like, what is it that is really captured when people are reporting on what they see in somebody's face? Uh, most of the time, that's what the question is. Uh, and use the statistics to actually test that. Get a bunch of judgments of enough facial expressions by enough people to actually have this ability to answer this question statistically. And so I came to Dacker. Um, and he said, well, well why, don't, why are you focusing on the face? I mean, uh, there's this whole world of vocal emotion that gets overlooked all the time. Um, for instance, have you looked at vocal bursts? And I said, where are vocal bursts? <laughs> I was just, nobody had ever said the word, the term vocal bursts to me. Yeah. And <laughs> Admittedly, the first just, time I heard it was working with you guys. I, didn't, I wasn't aware of it until... <laughs> And I don't know why people don't talk about vocal bursts. <laughs> We're going to change that with this podcast now. We're in the We're process. We're vocal bursts right now. Like Zach is making a vocal burst. <laughs> and then, you know, as soon as you start thinking about vocal bursts and then you go about your life, you're like, oh, that's a vocal, that's a vocal burst. You hear vocal bursts yeah. every single day, many, many times. And then you start to realize that's, you know, that's a laugh. That's amusement. That's, you know, in a grunt People do grunt and growl sometimes out of frustration, um, getting on the bus, whatever it is. That's a, you know, a, a, a sigh. That's a, a, a sigh of frustration or a sigh of relief or a sigh of contentment. And you hear it all the time. And uh, I was like, why, why don't we map these out? <laughs> it's crazy that <laughs> there's so much nuance here that nobody's paying attention to. And it seemed a lot more obvious than when you look at facial expressions. Mm -hmm. It's just right there in front of you. You hear it and you recognize it. Um, and so that's what we did. We just started gathering tons of vocal bursts. Um, <laughs> I, there's a lot in there to unpack that I'm going to ask about in a second. But one of the things that, that, the reason I'm so excited about this journey and excited about this in general and meeting all of you is um, right now, unclaimed real estate is a hard thing to come upon. And for you to find this this corner of this area that's been studied for thousands of years, it's documented, and to be like, well, why haven't we done that? And to, and to find this new way of approaching it is super exciting just to me, the, you know, the layman, the guy on the outside who's just hearing about it. Um, you know, I got to imagine it's very exciting for all of you in your field for, for, for this time to have this kind of data. Uh, and so that's one thing that I wanted to comment on, but also, and forgive me if I'm getting us off on a tangent here, but you mentioned vocal bursts and, and the observation of vocal bursts. Does that mean through this mapping, is there any overlap with, I'm an animal lover, I'm a dog lover and a, a cat appreciator, but really a dog person. Um, and it, has there been any overlap between us and, uh, you know, the, the, the animal world, the zoological world, now that we have this non, uh, you know, language, this different language, this auditory, all these sounds and laughs, have you even touched any of that with the data yet? Is there overlap? Am I crazy for asking that 
there's a, well, it's not my data. <laughs> you were nodding your head to it's, what I thought was, yes, you're crazy no, no, for no, bringing no. that There is a ton of data, and it's yeah. kind of sparse, and it's from all of these different disciplines that I had not been familiar with until I started working with Docker. And, you know, the, the behavioral, um, you know, ecology literature is vast. Um, and, uh, you know, you can look at non-human primates, you can look at mice. Um, one of the things that people had been looking at within emotion science is mice and how they vocalize in a way that's similar to laughter when you basically tickle them. Um, <laughs> and this was something people were studying. Go on. <laughs> and it, it's funny because it happens when you're tickling them, which emulates their version of you know, play behavior. Um, and there's this whole literature then when you, when you look into play behavior on rough and tumble play. And then you see it in every mammal, basically. Every mammal at a young age engages in rough and tumble play. And they make vocalize, often make vocalizations similar to laughter, or at least breathe in a way that's similar to laughter, whether they vocalize it or not, and make a kind of facial expression, which is an open mouth smile. Um, different versions of the open mouth smile exist in you know, canines, and mice, and all, pretty much every mammal you can think of. Seals, people have observed them with foxes. Um, and <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Um, Prepare, prepare for me to ask a question similar to this in every episode. Every emotion we cover, I'm going to be like, and foxes, do they do it too? And seals? I'm, I'm just going to want to know every so time. focused on that. We're working on that one, yeah. Okay, okay, good. As long as we got top right. people We'll have on to do a whole one. episode on laughter. So I, I could go off on a massive tangent here. It empties the lungs, and that signals that you're not seriously trying to hurt something, hurt somebody, because if you were, you'd have to align your breath with your actions, and that's what it allows you to be forceful and dominant in your behavior. But, you know, laughter disrupts that and vocalizing laughter shows the other person you're committed to disrupting that, that you're kind of weakening yourself. So they trust you. Anyway, there's this whole aspect of animal literature where you, you see separate literature on laughter and then you see separate literature, for example, on the growl. And people had looked at how the growl is a true signal of how big your lungs are, basically how much body mass you have. Um, you can't form a deep growl unless you have big lungs. Um, and so it's an honest signal of how threatening you are. Um, and it's, you know, every, we've heard it, in, you, know, you can hear a dog growl, you know, immediately what it means. You don't need to know anything about dogs. Yeah. Um, and you see uh, screams, kind of alarm calls, similar to some extent um, in different species. There's this aspect to them. Um, where they have a kind of rough feature that extends for long distances. Um, and so they can communicate alarm over long distances. So yes, there are many, many of these behaviors you can see in non-human animals. It's fascinating. I, and I, I apologize have, for sending you down the rabbit hole, pun intended, as it I were. I think we should have uh, a Zen koan for each show. And this one yeah. would be, can honeybees laugh? <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, you know, there's, Daniel, it's, oh, you know, just, just to like, yeah, go on, one Daniel. of my favorite examples of this is, you know, and part of this is trying to think about how deep do our human emotions go in mammalian evolution, right? Do they trace back to the great apes and then other mammals? And one of my, and it, it gives us a, 
a, a moment of pause from time to time. One of my favorite examples is the great apes will often, when they lose baby, often hold the baby after it's dead, and much like humans do. And great ape friends will show, will emit these little soft vocalizations of sympathy for the other great ape that's lost the offspring, right? And so what that tells us is when we notice sound of emotion, this isn't just a construction of culture or human. This goes back in mammalian evolution, right? And so it's, it's a really, I'm so glad you asked the question. And it's something we should always be asking ourselves is when we explore this really rich realm of emotion, these maps, um, how much of it is shared with other mammals? Because then that tells us uh, a lot about our deep evolution. For sure. Uh, thank, uh, thank you for making it sound as though I had an intelligent reason for asking that question. That's fascinating. <laughs> um, uh, I could do a whole episode just on that. Uh, but we've talked about emotion uh, and, and reflected in, in the world of mammals and the animal world. Uh, Danielle, you put emotion at the center of the lab you founded, the Google Empathy Lab. I imagine you signed an NDA that stretches from here to eternity, so we're not going to get too deep into that. But talk to me a little bit about emotion in tech, in, in design, and in the real world, and your experience there. Yeah. Before I worked in technology, I, my, my joke amongst my family is um, that I was the person who like was not great at math, so the great irony is that I've ended up in technology, but only because of my, uh, I guess, my creative, uh, my creative bones. But I think that the really interesting thing about technology with emotion is particularly where we are right now, we live so deeply and intimately with technology. It's this weird extension of self appendage, ubiquitous ambient, blah, blah, blah. And it's almost, I think technology, much less, much like work in general, it's almost like the goal is to engineer the vulnerability or the feeling out. It's get it perfect, make it efficient, make it optimized, help people be more productive, like do more and less time more easily. And I think what's weird is we've, we're in this new era right now where this new time is being born where we're impatient with and fed up with some of the gnarly and not so great parts of technology now we live wall to wall with it and it mediates so much of our social connection and some of what we were just talking about with the mammalian origin stuff is that like we are such a deeply social species that to have this new layer of being and interacting is is kind of a strange thing we're in like the braces phase with it and the power of focusing on emotion is not just taking care of people from the head up and thinking that we can solve problems and be audacious instead it's like let's take a beat let's take a breath let's talk let's talk about all the stuff we're pretending we didn't bring in the room what we're feeling what's going on with us how we are with each other when we look at what's around us, particularly at this moment in time, with so much social challenge, so much social healing, so much stress, so much anxiety, so much opportunity and potential for meeting the moment and growing. It's like, okay, how do you start to look at technology or architecture or product design or anything in that space and say, how do we serve wholeness? How do we serve kind of expansion and meaning and nourishment? And for me, the the original language of our being with each other is, is, is emotion. So it's this critical material for knowing the inner life of a person, taking care of that person, because 
it's like, you can't just focus on what people's brains and hands are doing. It's like, what's, what's really going on in the larger gesture of their life and what are they really working towards? So for me, it's just a, it's a way to say there are all these levels of thinking about people. Let's go to the deepest one that we all share and start there. Being, um, one of, if not one, yeah, one of, if not the first person to kind of introduce that at that level, uh, was there resistance when you were trying to sort of fold that into this world and introduce these concepts as you were saying, trying to break all those things down? What, what was that like for you to, to be the person saying, you know, this is, this is a great way we, we should approach things. It's it, <laughs> well, the funny thing about like bringing feelings up anyway is like, yeah, this isn't something that <laughs> is taught in school. Well, now it's being taught in school with social emotional learning and stuff. But when I was growing up and for most of the people that I work with, it's like, unless your family was one of those kind of blessed families where you, you did grow up with an emotional fluency. It's like, I like Dacker had art as language in my family. There were these kind of safe places for talking about this stuff. But most people just like don't know how to talk about this stuff. So it's just uncomfortable, much less in the work environment where you're trying to be like a a smart person, a perfect person to prove your worth to, you know. So I think the hardest thing that I just took head on was I would walk in a room full of people and be like, we're going to talk about feelings. Like, let's go. And (laughs) what I found was like the only antidote for that discomfort is humor and the other antidote for that discomfort is being able to speak the language of fact and science about the things like I was saying before that feel um, feel like it's like wrestling with jelly. You can't quite get your hands on it. So it was um, it was really challenging. And I'll just say it too: being a woman and doing that is like a double whammy. Um, it's yeah, it, 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 that was kind of a weird experience. Um, and at the same time, what I found was in every room that in the beginning kind of had me internally liquefying out of fear because of the executive leadership that was around. What was interesting was whether it came up and I would say now that the lab's established and we've been doing this a while, it's like now in the room, there's already kind of a primer or a warm up to that. Like people know what they're going to get and it's part of the yeah. framing. And so it's safe and you know, people know they're going to be taken care of and it's, you know, all that kind of good stuff. But I think what was interesting was in the beginning, so many people came up to me after the meetings where we would talk about, you know, the science of connection or, you know, how, how teaching and learning really works, um, in nonverbal communication or whatever the thing is we were addressing or mental health and anxiety and how the body responds to stress. It's like, whatever the thing was, People would come up to me afterwards and then tell me about their teenager or tell me about their family or tell me about this thing that happened 10 years ago that they're still working with. So what was interesting was like the conversation outside of the room was was where I was like, oh, I know this is really important, even though it's really hard in the room. And then what I found were just some kind of secret recipes for the right way to build trust in the room so people can let themselves air out or the way to talk about some of the hard things, um, that we're facing within, you know, kind of designing for things or cultural challenges or whatever it is. It's like finding common ground and common language, um, such as the science of emotion made it possible to go to those, those places. 
Wow. Thank, thank you very much for, for sharing that experience. And another podcast where we're not running out of time. I want to get into all of your secret recipes for finding <laughs> that. Um, mm. Fascinating. Uh, we're coming into the home stretch, but I wanted to bring up, there was something I was reading. Um, There's an article from around the time the film Inside Out came out. And uh, Dacker, obviously, you, you were uh, featured in the article and it was talking about the idea of everyone having a signature emotion, you know, much like in the film. And in the signature emotion uh, during your youth, I believe it said Dagger was contempt. Uh, and then you said that that turned <laughs> – this is <laughs> – and keep me honest. I'm, this is what they wrote. This is what they said you wrote, right? So they said that, that you said that your signature emotion in your yeah. youth was contempt. And then it says that that turned to fear and anxiety <laughs> in adulthood and then more recently evolved into <laughs> compassion. And then eventually you'd like your signature emotion to be contentment. And I thought this is a great time. One, I wanted to check in with you. Where are you in that journey these days? Uh, and then I just want to hear what everybody's sort of signature what they think their signature emotion is but uh, i thought that was a, a a great pull from that article and i was curious have you arrived at contentment yet sir <laughs> i've still got a long way to go matt uh, yeah well don't we all? Yeah, you know, okay. <laughs> it's so embarrassing i mean i teach emotion i teach happiness at berkeley uh and you know i i'm kind of embarrassed about who i was as a kid <laughs> was, everybody you know, is con- yeah i was contemptuous and then i had big bursts long periods of you know, uh, anxiety attacks and thinking I was dying. And then, you know, yeah. And then, um, you know, just kind of hitting a certain age, um, having young kids, having some bound experiences where open my eyes to kindness and stuff, ha- helping people who are suffering. Um, and, um, and then, you know, and, and that's one of the interesting things about emotions and their maps is, is they change over time, right? And you start out with a core emotion profile. It shifts, it ebbs, it flows. Uh, and today, I think, you know, I've been doing a lot of work on awe. And, and Danielle had mentioned on Wonder. And actually, it arose uh, not only early scientifically thinking about it, but more recently, um, you know, going through a period of grief at my brother's loss which opened my eyes to, in many ways, the biggest mystery of life, which is why does it end for the people we love dearly? Uh, And that experience of finding awe in loss, which is very common and human, uh, has shifted yet again this signature emotion. And I feel more, more, I feel a lot more awe about what we have, what I have left in time on earth and about life. And so, you know, it's one of the great things that you notice when you study emotion. I didn't, I wasn't aware of it until I was lucky to start studying. And it's like, wow, this sheds light on what I was like as a kid. I was this contemptuous kid that should have been thrown out of school. And then I got really anxious, et cetera. And, and, but this, at core I am, um, and you watch it change. So it's been a wonderful experience of noticing to use your word. Beautifully said, sir. Thank you. Uh, and that's a perfect se- – I mean, I'm going to go around. I want to know everybody else's signature emotion, but that's a, a perfect point to point out that we will, uh, in next week's episode, be digging deep into awe. And I'm excited, uh, especially on the heels of those comments, to, to get into that with you. Um, Alan, signature emotion, where are you these days? How are you feeling, sir? Uh, well, you know, I, I think I have to also address what my signature emotion was as a kid. I know that's not what you're asking, but <laughs> I think – <laughs> Give me the whole story. My signature emotion, I think, was <laughs> at least from from the second grade on, was doubt. I believed nothing mm. anybody told me. 
Um, and I tried to not let that be my. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> I tried to not let that be my signature emotion. Now, um, sometimes it is helpful. I think scientific skepticism is very healthy, um, and has helped me a lot in my scientific career. I aspire for my signature emotion to be awe. Um, I think mm. awe is an emotion you feel when you grow new synapses. And it's something that always guides you to discovery, probably even more reliably than doubt. I mean, doubt at least tells you there's something to be discovered here. Awe is what really guides you to making that discovery, to answering a question and not just naysaying uh, other people's answers. So I think that's, that's what I'm trying to make my signature emotion. Um, I've definitely built up a lot of awe, <laughs> um, knowing Docker, um, Mr. Awe. So, <laughs> um, uh, that is, uh, that's my answer. You just, great answer. You just said something in there real quick. You said awe is, um, what you experience or feel when you're firing new synapses. I think so. That's what you th I was going to ask, um, is that because you've observed people's brains uh, while experiencing emotions. I was curious if that's something that uh, data has informed or something that that you kind of uh, feel and have discovered throughout your. Yeah, your I mean, it's a, it's a combination. There, there's a constant suppression going on of um, your experience. Right. And, and so you don't really feel things as strongly the more often you feel them. Um, and. Hmm. Uh, I think awe is what you feel the first time, you know? Um, and yeah. part of what informs that view is not as much the neuroscience, which I think there's, a, there's so much work to be done there. And there's a lot of interesting work that has been done as well. But um, I, I, I usually lead my theories of emotion with behavior and then investigate uh, the neural underpinnings of those sort of behavioral systems. Um, Part of what informs that is um, the literature of uh, developmental psychology and you know, just my experience of watching, uh, you know, infants that uh, are in the family or, you know, uh, uh, friends, families, and seeing that what they express constantly is, you know, awe is like one of their default expressions <laughs> because, you know, every time, <laughs> you know, they can figure out that, you know, they, they can make a new noise by putting two things together like that. That's a, that's an epiphany for them. And you see the expression of awe. Yeah. So <laughs> that's part of also what motivates that theory that awe is growing new synapses. Um, so that's, that's awesome. It's beautiful. <laughs> I, I love that idea. I really do. I love that idea, especially the way you're observing it and, like you said, in infants and such, and uh, it's just uh, it's a pretty awesome concept. You have such a mild-mannered uh, temper about yourself, and you say really heavy, deep things. I like the combination. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, Danielle, what about your uh, – what's what's your signature emotion or even like, Alan, what do you aspire for it to be? Um, it's funny. I'm always such a mix of things. It's, it's, um, it's hard to pick one. I think – <laughs> Actually, just thinking of thinking of little thinking of little kids. Though I mean, I have a 16 month old, and what's so interesting is re-experiencing the kind of like pure form of emotions through her. So I think curiosity is just like a through line for me. I have just always been. I mean, some of my first memories. Nature is such a deep, uh, restorative environment or whatever place to 
lose myself. And I just remember, I remember like ladybugs and tree trunks and just all these kind of, you know, that like mishmash weird memories of your early, early kind of being. And that curiosity is like one of the first indwelling feelings that I remember having in knowing myself, which is an interesting kind of experience of like, how do I know myself as my feeling Mm -hmm. self? And so I still feel the curiosity a lot. And I feel like now my, it's almost like curiosity and awe always there. And really because they frame meaning for me. I know who I am and how to be in the world because of those two. And I lose my way all the time. And that's where all the other ones show up. But when I watch (laughs) my daughter, it's like, she, you know, just, she ate frozen blueberries for the first time the other day. And she's used (laughs) to not frozen blueberries. And it was just like the way it made her hands blue and cold. And then it was in her (laughs) mouth and it was, and it's like this, this kind of like Alan's saying, the first time you experience something, everything is so fresh and alive and enlivening. And so what's great is like, I, I can almost recognize parts of myself that I've forgotten this like process of remembering by watching her. And, um, so anyway, it's, it's funny that it's the same emotions, but it experienced in such a different way, like that Heraclitus way where it's like, it's different every time you feel it, even though it's the same thing, it's not, I guess that's why they're universal and yeah. Recycle so prop so so well. That's <laughs> why the science works. Beautiful. Uh w- such awesome answers. Thank you guys. Uh, as we get ready and we're wrapping this thing up and chasing the clock here, I won't be lucky enough to have all three of you with me every single week. So as I prepare to go down this path of discovery, uh, quick, give me your, uh, you know, 50 word, 30 second answer. What advice can you give me as I take this journey so that I get the most out of this experience? Daniel, I'll start with you. Um, let's see. The first is, yeah, the, <laughs> the first is actually, there's this Joseph Campbell quote that I love. That's like the, the cave you fear to enter holds the treasure mm-hmm. you seek. And, um, you're, you're on a hero's journey, man. You always are when you're going into the feeling worlds. Um, so there's that. And then there's also that, I think the, um, Sharon Salzberg is a really incredible, uh, teacher. And she talks about going easy on yourself. Like a lot of people do breath work and there's some like super brutal Zen traditions, you know, and, um, she is like, breathe the breath that's easiest for you. And I think what's funny as you do start to become aware of a lot of this stuff and in yourself and in your life, it's like, be, be, be easy with yourself, be easy with mm-hmm. all of it. Cause the truth is, is it can get really complicated and it is when you're trying to be precise and mapping it and all these things, but the real feeling of, of being a human feeling your feelings is your, your surfing waves. So it's like that kind of the joyful easiness or the joyful effort of that, I think is like a good spot to, to ride as you do this. Awesome. I love it. Alan, give me some sage wisdom, ma'am. What should I look out for? Give me some advice on my journey here. So I would say rely a bit on empathy. Um, I would, you know, I think okay. empathy is an incredible guide to the science of emotion. Um, but uh, I would caution, um, try not to rely too much on your own past experiences um, and I, I rely a lot on thought experiments. I think that's what's helped me a lot. Um, 
Um, I mean, you can draw a funny fast experience. (laughs) This is not a hard and fast rule, but um, yeah, (laughs) I think people um, have run into habits of thinking about emotions and you throw a word out and and it sort of loses its meaning over time and you don't really feel it anymore. Um, So instead of thinking about the concepts, it's often good to think about an emotional expression, what anger really sounds like in association with what's being talked about. Um, yeah, just the, just concepts get dull over time, I would say. And that's, you know, that's the beauty of metaphor. Yeah. That's the beauty of memes, for example, and why people rest on that rather than saying, I'm angry, listen to meme. Uh, you know, it, I think really the uh, expressions and um, thinking about the experiences itself are really helpful. Um, the, one of the frustrating things about emotion is I think that our visual working, and this is, this is not a proven scientific theory, so I'll preface it with that, but I think our visual working memory, you know, is, you know, four things. Um, we can keep, you know, seven plus or minus two things um, sort of in our, in our working memory as a whole. I think our emotional working memory is like one thing. <laughs> like we can really only feel one experience at a time. <laughs> And that's been one of the challenges is that in order to think about the breadth of and diversity of emotional experiences, um, you sort of have to have it mapped out. I mean, that's sort of how I look at it is you kind of have to have it mapped out in front of you uh, because it's really hard to count emotions in your head <laughs> because you can only feel one of them at a time. Um, and it's really hard to compare right. them in your head. You kind of have to go back and forth and evoke one and then evoke the other. Um, and that's been a helpful way of approaching understanding emotion for me. Got it. Okay. Dagger, what should I be looking for? How should I approach this? Give me some advice. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, in part, I learned this uh, working on Inside Out, where we really made the case that sadness should be the hero of the movie. You know, and sadness is messy, and it disengages you from the world, and you're not productive or efficient. You're kind of reflecting on life. And, and I think the reason we could make that case is it's true about emotions more generally that, that I think for you, Matt, uh, trust mm. them, you know, watch them, observe them, uh, and say, um, I'd rely on um, Walt Whitman, who said, if the soul is not in the body, where is it? Right. And he really made the case that our soul or why we're here, what's most important to us or sacred, is emotional. It's about a passion. It's about your body. And he overturned all the thousands of years of skepticism about feeling in Western thought. And he said, these passions are why we're here. You know? And so for me, thinking about that when I went through grief or anxiety or thought about my contempt as a young kid, uh, it, it sort of accepting them, observing them, transform them into better things. Awesome. Amazing. Um, I am extremely grateful for all of you for being so generous with your time today and, and, and hanging out with me and, and sharing all of these stories that you've shared and all the insights so far. Uh, I'm incredibly excited for this journey that we will be taking, that I will be taking with you and you will be taking with me. It's going to be so much fun. <clears throat> pardon me uh but first and foremost just thank you thank you so much for 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 hanging out here for this episode and thank you in advance for uh, all the insight and expertise that you'll 
um, you know, afford me along this road. Well, that's going to do it uh, for episode zero. Again, a massive, massive thank you to not only my co-hosts and guests today, but but to you, the listener, the, the watcher, wherever you are out there, the person taking this trip with me. Thank you for joining us and hanging out today as well. Uh, be sure to come back each episode. We've got some incredible ground to cover. This season, we're talking about embarrassment, desire, horror, all kinds of amazing stuff. It's going to be one heck of a ride. And don't forget, if you like the show, if you had some fun, even just a tiny bit, all right that's great share the podcast tell a friend about it uh they give you one to five stars use them all right if you got a lot of free time go ahead and write a review for us that helps us out a bunch as well uh in our next episode we'll be covering and exploring the emotion of awe and we've got a feeling it's a podcast you won't want to miss from the feelings lab at hume ai i'm matt forte thanks again everybody stay safe out there have a good one